you're affected by anything you hear on this podcast, get in touch via manblues at gmx.com or at manbluesuk on Twitter. We're not qualified to help, but we can listen. Please don't suffer in silence. Hi, I'm Leon Deggs, and this is Man Blues. In this week's episode, why dads are dads. Okay, a little bit of confession time here. I have a tr- I've attempted to record this episode about six times. I also I created notes for this particular episode on things I wanted to say, and I then put those notes at the bottom of the pile and ignored them because I just couldn't quite get across what my point was. And I don't think I still have. So this may genuinely rank as one of the toughest episodes for me to record to try to get the point across, but also the toughest episode for me to actually get to the bottom of what my man blues is when it comes to being a father. Now this show isn't about being a father. It's not about how difficult it is to be a father because nothing is easy when it comes to parenting. Everything that I'm about to say can equally apply to both the mother and the father. And that's why this episode has been difficult to sort of drill into what it means for me and for us here at Man Blues, what it means to be a father. So I started thinking about it. Well, the idea for this episode came from I watched an interaction with a mother, father and child in the high street and something had happened. The child had fallen over and the dad was closest to the child when the child fell. The dad picked up the child, was dusting the child down and just asking the child if it's okay. And then the mother comes storming in and the dad immediately, hands off like the child was hot to the touch, stepped back and let the mother do the mother thing. And I watched that and I thought, that father was doing just fine. There was no reason for him to have stopped what he was doing and to have held his hands up like he was in trouble and for him to step back. There was no reason for that at all. Yes, I thoroughly understand that I don't know the dynamic of that family. I don't know if there's a history of that man having hurt the child or there's a history of that woman being overprotective. I don't know. But what I saw was a father being a father until the mother turns up. That's what this episode is about. That's the subject I'm trying to get across, and I think, genuinely, just by vocalising that now, over the last few seconds, I've hit the crux of what I'm trying to get to. I can't, for some reason, put it down in words, which means I also can't, for some reason, find any way to Google what the issue is, so I can't provide any positivity. So this episode is going to end on a sour note. I'm just saying that now, just so that you're aware. So what is a dad or father? Well, here at Man Blues, we like to give you the thorough information on things, so we Google the definition for it. It is a man in relation to his child or children. Okay, so what's a father in terms of the family? So I found a beautifully structured sentence that says, through almost every studied culture, fathers have assumed three primary roles, the protector, the provider, and the disciplinarian. It's important to note that in many two-parent families today, mothers are fulfilling these three roles as much as fathers. And I don't dispute that. As I said, right at the top of the episode, 
mothers can have the exact same things said about them that I'm about to say of fathers. So let's deal with those one by one. Protector. Well, yeah, of course. But fathers also encourage children to do dangerous things, like riding bikes and climbing trees and etc. etc. You know, we're the ones who take them out of their comfort zone and teach them something, you know, a life skill, not that mothers don't. And that's the last time I'm going to caveat any of this, by the way. I'm not going to keep repeating, not that mothers don't or mothers do this as well. That needs to be understood. Okay? So fathers are quite encouraging of this kind of, let's say, dangerous behaviour. I was the one pushing, for instance, for my son to go and get his driving licence. My wife was a little bit more reluctant, a little bit reticent. She was thinking it's a bit dangerous for him out there. Yes, of course it is. But the way I got her around to my way of thinking was just by pointing out to her that her parents had the exact same worries about her learning to drive. Her mother was probably standing in the way. Her father was encouraging. And she said, yes, that's true. And that was my point. That brought me to my point fully about the fathers will be encouraging the dangerous behaviour and mothers do what mothers do. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that dynamic. So as I say, the fact that a a father is um, a protector, that's not being disputed. That I agree with. And what about provider? Because that role is certainly being challenged and rightly so. I don't have any issue with my wife earning more money than me. We had a long period where she did. I also don't have any issue with me earning more money than her because I'm quite happy to provide for the family. So let's move on to disciplinarian. Right, this is a little sort of personal bugbear of mine is the disciplinarian. Because this one I feel is heavily weighted against the men. Because what is meant by a disciplinarian, that's usually somebody who's handing out discipline. Now, discipline doesn't mean a slap or a kick or a punch or anything like that. It, it doesn't necessarily stand that discipline is a telling off, a shouting at, you know, a get to your room, go to bed sort of thing. I do remember really early on in the life of our son that my wife and I had a conversation and I made her promise to me that she would never, ever say to our son, wait till your father gets home. Because I didn't want to have him sitting at home worrying what his father would do when his father came home. That was something that was in my life. Wait till your father hears about this. And that fills you with dread. And then my father died when I was nine, as has been discussed in a previous episode. So my mother didn't have that weapon anymore. But ironically, my mother became equally the same amount of threat as wait till I get home. But I wanted to make sure that my wife wasn't using that as a tool to then just make my son fearful of me and afraid of me. The problem is, that's how it ended up happening anyway. By virtue of the fact that when our son needed disciplining, I'm not saying my wife didn't, but when our son needed disciplining, nine times out of ten, it was I who stepped in. And it's just because my son was exhibiting behaviour that I was not happy with, whereas my wife was kind of, oh, just let him be a child, it's fine. And I would say, no, stop doing that. Don't misbehave. Don't talk to your mother like that. To the point where I'm kind of instilling in my son so much respect for women and and his mother in particular that I think I'm doing myself a disservice that my son doesn't view me as a father in that kind of sense. He probably more likely views me just as someone who shares the house with him and sometimes tells him to clean his bedroom and bring his pots downstairs. I don't necessarily... And this is just my perception... And this is what's the driving thing behind this episode. My perception 
of me as a father is that my son doesn't really have a lot of love for me. He certainly doesn't seem to me to have as much love for me as he has for his mother. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm genuinely okay with that. I believe I lost him about 10 years ago. Not because I was too hard on the discipline, not because I was too soft on anything else, whatever it is, there's no particular reason. It's just that whenever my son did something or said something and I stepped in and commented on it, the issue that we would have is at the point when I was commenting on his behavior and correcting it and stopping him from doing what he was doing, it was around the same time as he was learning his own boundaries and I was stepping in and stopping them. So of course, I become the hate figure. So this conversation that I had with my wife where I said, I don't want this fear of his father. I've been the architect of my own downfall. Years ago, there was the TV show on British television. And there were a lot of disposable comments in the writing on that show that I think were genuine insights into philosophy and psychology. But they were passed off in a sitcom, so people just laughed about them. In one of the episodes, the guy and his girlfriend, so the Without going into too much explanation, the guy's at home, lives in his flat with his, with his male flatmate and his girlfriend pops in every now and again. But the girlfriend needed help and she needed her nephew to be looked after while she was out at work. So the man is looking after the nephew, starts chatting to the nephew and starts talking and explaining a few things, teaching the boy about his worldview. One of the comments he makes is he says... In a relationship, there needs to be two types of behavior exhibited by each person. One person needs to be the funny one, and one person needs to be the disciplinarian or the police. Now, he referred to himself as being the funny one, and he referred to his girlfriend as being the police. Well, that stuck with me when our son was born, because I felt I was the policeman and she was the funny one. But the irony is, I was also the funny one. So that's why I feel that my son might have a confusing relationship with me because he doesn't know when I'm going to be fun and he doesn't know when I'm going to be a policeman because I am both roles at the same time. And he won't know whether I'm joking or not. And I do tell a lot of jokes in a very deadpan mode. So I'm confusing him and I understand that fully. But you see, that's the point I'm trying to get to is that fathers are often also encouraging their kids to have fun and try their boundaries. They're very supportive and they'll explain how to do things to improve and so on. But the problem is, Fathers are also competitive. So nobody is infallible in this. Nobody's perfect in this. Everybody has their own flaws that they bring to the table. However, children don't ask for their father when they've had nightmares. And dads will often step back and just let mothers do their thing. As I say, with the scenario that I saw on the street the other week, he was perfectly capable of dealing with the situation. And the more dads stepped back, the more it's expected of them to step back. And then it becomes normal and then in my eyes, the fathers disappear. And at some point, that's just going to stop. You're just going to be somebody's dad. And comedian John Bishop was on a podcast the other week and I, I heard him say something incredibly poignant, but he was talking about a set that he used to do on his stand-up. And he said, when you've got teenage boys, there will be one day that will be the last time they hold your hand in public. I do wonder whether or not my teenage son would still hold his mother's hand if they were walking down the street, but I would suspect so. But if I reached out for his hand, There'd be either some jokes made or whatever it was and he'd look at me and there'd be a whole moment of, why are we doing this? Even though I tell him I love him, I give him hugs and I give him cuddles, I'm a very affectionate man to my son, there would still be that moment of, why are we doing this? Because he's reached that age where he no longer needs me for emotional support. What I mean by that is, he no longer needs me for emotional support until he needs me, if you understand my drift. So as I say, when it comes to positivity, I'm very short on this. 
I don't know what the solution to this problem is because dads kind of have it inbuilt that when the mother stepped forward, the father stepped back. I've told the story of when my son was having night terrors when he was three, four years old. And it turned out that it was just trapped wind. So this trapped wind was causing him pain. It caused his brain to manifest that into these horrible dreams. He was waking up and screaming, eyes wide open, seeing things that weren't there. I can't begin to explain how really creepy that was. So I was, I used to pick him up out of bed and I would sit him on my lap and I'd lean him, you know, wobbling backwards and forwards to try it. Because once I realized it was trapped wind, I was trying to get it back out again. And he used to point down the corridor to the, at the end of the hallway, we had the bathroom at the end of the room and he, the, the bathroom light was lit up so that he would have kind of like a nightlight. And he would point down to the bathroom and he would be looking around me, trying to see to the bathroom to see, there was something in there that he could see. And I kept repeating his name and bringing him back to the room and sort of, you know, trying to make him awake. And then suddenly you hear this kind of burp and then his eyes would start to glaze over and he would, his eyes would start to flap and his, basically then he fell asleep in my arms and I laid him back in bed. I dealt with that easily 10 to 15 times before my wife ever saw it once. And that one time when she saw it, we were both home. I heard him screaming, started doing the thing and I walked upstairs and my wife chased me upstairs. And I picked him up and she was really panicking and nervous and I just said, it's okay, I've got this, I understand what it is. By the 11th, 12th, 13th time he was having these terrors, they were really scary because he was afraid of me picking him up because now his brain had transported some imagery from his mind onto my face and his hand was shaking as he reached out towards me and touched me on the cheek to check it was me. He could hear my voice but couldn't see me. That is really freaky. So when your four-year-old is doing that and you're in a situation where you're in complete control because you've seen it 13 times before and then the mother bustles in and tries to do something different and I had to stand my ground and say no, I know what I'm doing, watch this. And then he would fall asleep and I'd lay him down. That night, when I went back downstairs, I explained to my wife all about what I'd been experiencing in this, at least once, twice a month. And I explained to her what the situation was and how it all worked. And it was at that moment she went, dads can be dads too. Dads can be dads too. Children don't just need their mothers, they also need their fathers. Because I approached that situation with a completely logical mind thinking, oh my God, the first time I do not mind admitting I was really out of my comfort zone. I had no idea what the hell to do. But then equally, my wife wouldn't have known. She wouldn't have immediately walked in the room and gone, that's trapped wind, that. Because she'd never seen it before either. But my point is, in that moment, I was the one who knew and I was the one that could solve the problem. But I just became the problem solver. When I walked out of the room and took her downstairs with me, when she went up to bed about half an hour, 45 minutes later, she went in to check on him. She stayed there with him. She put a cold cloth on his head and she was stroking him and whispering to him and stuff and cuddling him while he slept. She was doing the motherly things that as a father would never have occurred to me. Because what I saw was I saw the child sleeping perfectly fine. What she saw was her baby. And I think that might be the difference. Not that I switched off in my brain that he's not a baby anymore, he's not my baby, but in my brain I was thinking, well, he's, he's four years old, he's a big boy now. And in fact, I was the one who was encouraging my wife to accept the fact that he is a big boy. And as he got older, I was telling her, no, you can't accept him as being a, a child anymore, he's now a teenager, you can't accept him as a teenager anymore, he's a young adult. All of the times where he's had to move on in the developmental stage of a child, I've been the one who's been, who's been encouraging my wife to say, move on in your mind as well. He's still my son, he's still my little ball of perfection that was born all those years ago, 
but I've helped myself by moving on to be at the same stage where he is. And a long time ago I realised that he no longer needs me. He doesn't. He might need me for some emotional support and he might need me for some actual support. So he's going off to university this year and both my wife and I are encouraging him and supporting him in the same way. But we're doing it in completely separate conversations. So I'm talking to him and then she's talking to him. And I am genuinely worried that when he goes to university, he's not going to switch people on in the right way. He's not going to engage in the right way because he's got a kind of a locked mentality and locked mindset about people his age. And the worst thing is, he took a year out before going to university, which means he's going to be a year older and a year more mature. <sighs> this show was supposed to be about dads and I've made it more about my son, but I've also made it more about fathering. And I think that's what affects my man blues most is that I feel as though, while I've gained a friend, I've also kind of lost a son. I've got someone living in this house who just happens to be in this, under the same roof as me, and I've got wishes and hopes and desires for his future, but they're all in his control, not mine. And I said many years ago, as I say, my son's 19 now, and I must have said at least 10 or 11 years ago to my wife, we can no longer teach him, now he has to learn. I've forgotten that I also need to learn. I'm Leon Deggs, and I'm just out here doing my best. And as well as everything else, to my child, I'm his father. Thank you for listening. <laughs>